Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's not about me I'm only here for a minute And I know that I can't fix it I can help even just a little bit Won't you let me try Hello and welcome to the latest Laz and Powers Quarantine Edition. I'm Mark Lazarus of The Athletic, joined by Scott Powers. Scott, how you doing? Good, Mark. Good to see you. You too. Actually on Zoom this time, so we actually can (laughs) see each other. And you can see this absurd, ridiculous quarantine beard that i have growing. yeah you're doing well for yourself there i look i'm starting to get i got the joe thornton like silver stripes down the bottom of it too like i don't know if i can get to that length that he had it but it's got the same vibe <laughs> yeah i uh, i've been shaving every day or every other day so i'm nowhere near you my kids i'm just at this point entertaining myself and my kids it's all that's all that matters i'm entertained now too so <laughs> <laughs> i was i was telling you all off air like i had a chocolate cup we made chocolate cupcakes last night with the kids and have you, if you've ever gotten chocolate frosting in your mustache, it's like an ordeal, man. Like it takes like effort and, and, and like utensils to get it out of there. <laughs> I don't know why people do this. No, but, uh, exciting today. We got another guest, our second, uh, second former Blackhawk. We got Christopher Stieg, uh, who's done the, the round and, uh, is, uh, been nice enough to, he'll do ours as well. So. Uh, we'll uh, we'll bring in Chris. We are joined now by Chris Versteeg, two-time Stanley Cup champion with the Blackhawks. Uh, Chris, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes to hang out with us today. Uh, how are you holding up? The uh, standard question we have to ask anybody in quarantine. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think you might have a little bit of background noise, uh, being my kids, but it's it's good being around them. It's different, definitely, when you go from never being around them to to full time it's like i hit retired hockey player in full bore because you, you <laughs> toss the quarantine into it and 
And I guess people always try to find things to do. And there's obviously right now the, the demands are to stay home. So like I said, it's uh, retired hockey player times 10 uh, if you include the quarantine, but it's, but it's been all good. We obviously probably expected you, you know, this was probably the end of your career, but for it to be announced and for it to be official, is it, does that feel any different for you? Yeah, it, it does. I, I knew this was it, you know, especially when I was in Rockford and then I kind of got hurt at the end of camp there and I thought I was playing good and I could still play at the level to play in the NHL. But then uh, I got hurt and then I went to Rockford and it got worse and I was sitting out for three weeks and I came back and it was nagging again. And um, it was something I dealt with for, you know, probably since 2015 and it was just too much to keep going with and keep rehabbing and going through. So I knew that was kind of it. I still wanted to do a couple things prior to retiring. So that's why I did the Spengler Cup and then played with my brother. And that that's when it was, I knew that was done. How disappointing was it? I, I talked to you over the summer a few times and, you know, you thought your legs were back, your speed was back. You looked really good early in training camp. I think you scored during the training camp festival. I think I tweeted out that I was 100% certain we were going to see you in a Blackhawks uniform at some point during the season. Uh, for it to go, you know, to, to, for the injuries to come back so quickly, how disappointing was that? Yeah, it was disappointing. I know, no doubt, if I could somewhat stay healthy, I could play. And then if you were to talk to me, even during camp, even after I kind of tweaked it in that, that Washington game, I would have still felt like at some point I was going to play in the NHL just with how good I was feeling. And then even go as far as the Spangler Cup, you know, I, I was one of the leading scorers in the entire tournament and basically played five games leading up to that. And so for me, still playing at an extremely high level going into the Spangler Cup, I, I would even have told you after that point I could still play in the NHL, but it's just my body and it was time. I couldn't handle the schedule. One second, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, just, just knowing it's it's physically time. <laughs> uh, just knowing that it's physically time that uh, I, I just couldn't go through the ringers of an everyday schedule uh, unless – unless it was basically just probably playing games and practicing to be brutally honest. And uh, that's kind of what I did in Calgary, actually my last year and a half there anyways, but um, just compromising with the coaching staff about taking practices out on a lot of days and just playing games. But yeah, it's, I just knew it couldn't go through it anymore physically. We call that the Marion Hosa. Yeah, that's, well, and then that's what I felt like minus you know, <laughs> 500 games in a, a hall of fame career. <laughs> What do you take from the the Rockford experience, riding the buses and spending time with the kids, and I, you know, just I, I guess what was it like to be an AHL player again? It was it was good. It it puts a lot of things into perspective. First off, how hard you got to work in order to get there. Um, I I knew I put a lot of effort and work into it, but uh, until you see the kids and how much they want it, uh, how much they're putting into it to get a shot in the NHL, is uh, it's pretty inspiring to go back and see that. I know. Uh, I felt like during when I was not being able to play at a hundred percent and I was kind of just playing games. Sorry, I got to get my wife together. But (laughs) when I I knew I was uh, playing games and not at a hundred percent and it was, uh, you know, kind of like I was just like trying to get through games and not really give it my all more. So that was, uh, that was tough on me because you see these kids giving it everything and I didn't think it was fair to them uh, to have to, you know, watch me not give it my all basically and, and maybe take ice time away from kids that have given everything. And they only got a short window as well. And I remember that short window for me when other guys would get called up and I'd, I'd 
question Dale Talon, like, why am I not the guy getting called up, you know, and you only have a, a few years to make it. So it just didn't make sense for me to take ice time away from these kids. But I gained a lot of perspective in my time there uh, on how hard it is and, and basically just how lucky you are to play in the NHL. How, how tough was it to go back to, you know, those, those bus rides after living five stars in the NHL and staying at the Ritz Carlton's and the charter flights and all that? Yeah, for me, it, I mean, it was tough because you, when you're in the NHL, you take a lot for granted. Um, it, it was definitely, I, I played the year prior a little bit in Russia, but in Sweden and it was mainly bus rides and stuff. So I was a little bit prepared for that. Uh, but I mean, I, it's not like I had five star my entire life. You know, I it wasn't like I was some rich kid either growing up that got to play hockey. And so I've, I, and it is hard going back, you know, it, it definitely is. I would be lying in that sense, but uh, I think you just find, like I said, more of a respect for everything everyone's willing to go through to get to the game. More so me just having to ride the bus. I was never, it was never that big of an issue for me. The thing that was an issue actually was in Sweden. <laughs> Uh, the bus rides weren't, but it was when you're flying three hours in a cargo plane, basically, to go play in Sweden. You, you're, we'd fly from Bekwa to up north on the day of a playoff game, and it would take three hours to get up north. And these planes are sitting like this, and with my hip uh, being as bad as it was, at least on a bus you can lay on the floor, but you can't lay on the floor in a plane. So I remember when I get to the games in Sweden, I was like, my body was all locked up and my hip was basically not moving. So that was a lot tougher than playing uh, on the bus because you could just sprawl out on a bus how do you hope people remember you i don't know i think that's going to be different for uh, everyone whether you liked me or hated me or somewhere in between i think everyone has a different view of that of me and that's kind of up for them to determine but um definitely you know in that brief part of 2014-15 where i've got my game back and felt like i was playing with that florida the, the stint in Florida as well as in Chicago that uh, when I was at the top of my game, I feel like I could be one of the better players in the league and someone that can contribute in a lot of different ways. You're really the only guy. I mean, the, the Blackhawks have brought so many people back from that 2010 team over the years. You're the only one that really succeeded that like, you know, won a Stanley cup after leaving and coming back. How much of a challenge is that to reintegrate into a team when you've already been there and gone and it's not the same when you get back? Yeah, it is tough. It's tough on multiple reasons. I know when I came back, I came back just getting off of major hip and knee surgery. So the, the player everyone got to see wasn't the player that left in 2010 initially until I believe at the start of that 14, 15 season where I was able to train and, and do all that. Um, but it, it's difficult in, in multiple ways. Just for that, for me, was the biggest. And mentally, uh, coming back, I feel like they had their team that won in 13. So now in order for a player like me you got to find ice time for me and I'm sure for Q that wasn't ideal for him initially me coming back either and uh probably wasn't one thing he wanted but uh you know I I stayed with it and I tried to you know earn ice time over time again uh within the system and within the players he had uh so I think it's it's difficult for coaches and players as well it's not like I was uh, a player that just played fourth line when I was coming back or in and out. It, it is difficult when uh, you have to slot players in for coaching staffs that need ice time. Did, did you get a sense that Bowman wanted you more than Quinville then? Yeah, I definitely did. Um, you know, Bowman and me had a great relationship and Q and I did, but you know, Q had his team pretty much all intact from 13 come back minus maybe Stahlberg and a couple guys. And, and they were rolling when I got there too. 
uh, in the 13-14 season. So I, I feel like at the start, definitely um, that was it. But, you know, that's just how things are going to be. You know, I feel like Bowman for sure wanted me at the time more than Glenville did. You always kind of had a love-hate relationship with Joel, it seemed. I mean, you were one of those players where he would give you a long leash, but then he would just give you endless shit for anything you tried on the ice, wasn't it? It was kind of a kind of a give and take there with him. You were kind of an Andrew Shaw before Andrew Shaw was here. Yeah, I was definitely Shaw before Shaw. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I had a very short leash, I think. Um, and when I would come to play, like you said, my, my leash would lengthen quite a bit because I think he could see what I could and uh, couldn't do. And, uh, there's also, uh, there's so many players ahead of you, you know, and you can only give so many players on every team a long leash. So uh, at times it would piss me off because I was like, man, I'm playing good. Or maybe I've had a good stretch and all of a sudden I'm sitting here playing seven minutes tonight where I was playing a stretch of, you know, 16 to 17 minutes. So I think for, at, for a player, it's difficult, but when you take a step back and I, I did understand it too, it's like, what are you going to sit Jonathan Taze and Marion Hosa and, you know, Patrick Kane. So if those players weren't around and it was happening to me, I wouldn't understand it. But I was kind of the guy in between those players and the players, um, you know, on the bottom. So, and also at times I was told, you know, if you're going to sit, you know, Andrew Desjardins or guys like that, a lot of the time, it's not going to make the biggest impact on the rest of the players. But if you're going to sit, you know, guys like Shaw or myself, it, it makes more of an impact on guys if they see guys that are in the lineup every day um, that are getting scratched. And I think that's why you see Quenville. He's not scared to make moves against certain guys. And, and that's why he's a successful coach because he's willing to do things that probably a lot of coaches aren't willing to do. And um, and he knows which players it'll take to, to do it to, to press the team's buttons. And uh, he's also got to have players that are mentally strong enough to go through that adversity. And Sometimes I felt like, uh, you know, I was like, man, what the hell? But also, it, it is what it is. And I'm not angry or resentful or anything for it. Colin Frazier and uh, Troy Brower told me stories about how, you know, they would just yell, fucking Versteeg, no matter yeah. who was out there making a turnover. Oh, we can swear on this thing? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, he, they, that, that was like the catchphrase of the bench. Whenever anyone would screw up, they would scream, fucking Versteeg. Uh, I mean, there were so many plays, man. Like, <laughs> like, like I said, Boland didn't mess up very often, right? And he was, uh, he, like, he was my line mate sometimes. Sometimes he wasn't, especially in the Havlat years where Havlat, Boland, and Lad were kind of aligned. And when Boland would be off the ice and I'd be off the ice, or Boland would be on the ice and I'd be off the ice, all of a sudden you fucking Versteeg, what the fuck? And then I'd just like turn back and I'd look. And he'd be like, I'd be like, I'm right here, man. He'd be like, regardless, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> you know? So it was just like, and I'd be like, so like, what the hell just happened there? He just, you know, gave me shit. But and then it it would bring a smile to everyone else's face at my expense, but whatever. It was all it was all is what it is. I mean, um, I, I don't know how many guys in today's game could handle the criticism, you know, constantly mm-hmm. like that. But uh, not to say I handled it with grace all the time, too, because sometimes I'd, I'd ask questions and, you know, I'd be pissed off about it. But at the end of the day, like I said, it, it's something that you played through. And that's just kind of it's how it was my whole life, though, with hockey uh, and kind of our generation. Um, coaches were hard on you, man. Like they gave you shit and you just put your head down and went through it and. Uh, if you played hard for them, you'd get your ice time. So it's nothing like I was, I was like worried that like my life or career was over. It's just something that you, you realize was happening in the moment. And a lot of guys got a lot of laughs at it. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. 
and that was the way hockey was. You know, you know, we both covered that second stint, but you know, at first it went the Hawks. And what I remember you bouncing around the lineup a bit. Were there guys that were easy to play with or hard to play with in your career? Or as a, it seemed like you kind of adapted, but did you find like playing with Kane was easier than playing with someone else? Or what, like your experience? Well, when I was up and down, I'd play with different guys and different line mates. But that first year was me, Kane, and Taze. And in the first, I think it was 21 games, I had 25 points. And it was me, Kane, and Taze as a line, and we were just lighting it up that 2008-9 year. And then as the season went, I think Q saw me kind of more filling out my own line, you know, and not just – he. I could play with the top guys, but he also knew that I could probably produce from a, a depth standpoint as well. So about, I'd say, a third into the season, he put me with uh, Buff and – uh, it really bounced around from centerman to centerman until Sammy Paulson came in. So uh, I, and cause that lad, like I said, that lad Havlat and Bowling line was a staple. And then it'd be me and Buff usually with someone else in between us uh, for the rest of the season and that playoff run, like I said, till Sammy came. But uh, that next year, it kind of would always flip flop again. Boland was in and out of the lineup. I played a lot of center that year, uh, 2010 year, not a lot, but you know, a 10, 15 game stint. Uh, and then I'd play right wing, left wing. So I played a lot of positions, and I think Q could trust me in and about those minutes too. I mean, I think in the playoff run, I was probably in the top five-minute played forwards in the 2010 uh, playoff run. So he used me in a lot of different situations as well as PK. Uh, so I, he found different ways to use me, and I knew the only way for me to play in the NHL was to be able to play left and right wing because if I was a right winger, which I was coming into the NHL, you had Kane, Hosa, and Sharp at the time, and Hosi or and Sharp even had to move to left wing as a right shot. So I knew I had to become more versatile as a player uh, in order to be able to play with everyone. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't even have a job. So what's I, the best? Sorry. Oh, what's what's the best stretch you've had? Is it that stretch with Taves and Kane, or was it that oh. stretch in fourteen fifteen with Richards and Kane? No, my best stretch was Florida, hands down. Yeah. Best hockey I ever played was two thousand twelve thirteen in Florida. Um, if you look back, I, I think it was 30 points in 20 games, 21 games. Uh, and, um, after that, uh, so what happened was, is there was a, it was 40 is, I don't know which game it was in the forties. We played Montreal and I had 48 points in 45 games. And, uh, I, it was only Malkin Kessel and, uh, um, I was, I believe I was like fifth or sixth in league scoring that year. And I took a hit from Josh George's and I fell on my hip and I felt it. And he, he pressed kind of on my opposite shoulder and I felt like something just go in my hip. And then I played another five or 10 games after that. And then I had to get looked at because it was just hard pinching and grinding in my hip. I didn't know what was wrong. And that was kind of relatively new for hip, hip surgeries at that time. Guys kind of played through it, but mine was getting so bad. I couldn't even move my legs. So I flew to um, Nashville, took three weeks off, came back. And in the last 20 games, I didn't have it, but until playoffs again, where I could take stuff to help, uh, help the pain. But, uh, it was, it was a 40, 40 to 45 game stint where, uh, I just felt like, man, I, I can be a top player on a team and, and help teams win. And, uh, we had a line that was, you know, even going into the playoffs when we got it back, it was one of the best lines in the NHL. If you look up, I think as, like those 45 games when as a threesome, there might've been only one or two lines with higher point totals. And we would have had in that 11, uh, 12 season with Florida with Fleischman and Weiss. So it was, it was the best long stretch of hockey I got to play. And then the injuries obviously came in, 
Um, but then you, I look back as the that rookie year in, in the NHL and, and as well the 14-15 would be the, the other two kind of little pieces uh, of the best hockey I would have played. I'm working on a story about the pony and I've talked to a couple of the employees and owners and stuff and your names come up a little bit. What, uh, what do you, what do you remember about those days? And it, and it seemed like, you know, they said it wouldn't just be one or two. You guys would, you guys, you guys were rolling pretty deep there and you guys are known as a pretty tight uh, group, but it seemed like it was, you guys were, I mean, it wasn't like you guys want to be private there, even that you guys were pretty open and public and it was uh, just a, just a fun time. Yeah, it was it was different too, you know. Like social media was kind of just starting, and we'd have drinks with the fans and uh, just talk with them. And but we they we, they also gave us our privacy too, and we'd ask for privacy as well. They'd have a, a area sectioned off, or we'd get to go upstairs and kind of just have drinks by ourselves. But we also wanted to interact with everyone and have fun with the fans, and and we did that a lot. So, but I remember it would always be around one or two. They'd always have me go on the mic, and I'd. I'd always kind of sing it just for fun, just to get everyone going and, and laughing. But though that happened quite often. And um, yeah, it was so many great memories there. And Chris Bravos, uh, I believe he owns the scout now. Uh, he was a part owner of that and he was good friends with all of us and just a great guy. What do you remember about the 2010 cup crawl afterwards? Those, those two weeks after you win the cup, because I've asked a lot of guys this over the years and they all have very, let's say fuzzy memories of what exactly went on. Cause it was just, it was just two weeks nonstop. Yeah, it was it was nuts. It just it started from when we got to Harry Carey's and went like you said the pony right after. Um, but I the best part about it for me was when we got on the the party bus and we went from everyone's favorite spot to a favorite spot. We started at the tavern and that was my favorite spot. My buddy Scotty was the manager there and I told him we were coming by and we'd bring it in and then we go to the next guy's favorite spot. And then I remember we'd head up someone's favorite sushi place. And every time we'd walk into a place, we'd warn the owners and everyone we were coming just to bring it in and bring it by for a good 20 or 30 minutes. And, and we'd walk it in and they'd play music or the, the Chelsea Dagger song or the, the, the DJ Cali All I Do Is Win song. Uh, it was really big at that time. But it was uh, it was good because we, we interacted with everyone and it wasn't where everyone was uh, – I guess rude or a dick about it. You know, everyone got to uh, either touch the cup or get a picture with it. And uh, I think we really, really shared it with the city that year. And I think everyone was very, very happy about that. Did it, did any places turn you away and say, you know what, we don't want this? No, but I remember the police were definitely out in full force. There was one time we stopped uh, right by it was shenanigans, I believe it was called in those places on state and rush. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we went just kind of on those little pubs and all of a sudden there was like five or 6,000 people out and they had to bring the police and the horse, the horses, and they had to block off air like areas just so we could get from the bar into the party bus, just so we could get everyone onto the the bus together. Uh, And I remember at one point it was just a sea of people. It was almost like a parade and, and the cup was crowd surfing. It was just like people were passing (laughs) from the bar all the way to the bus. And it was, it was a moment I won't remember, but I or I won't forget because I remember even the police are like, we we just need to know where you guys are going just so the everyone's safe and mm-hmm. and no one gets trampled basically. And that's where we we needed the help of the police, which were they were so amazing in helping everyone uh, during those times uh, get from place to place uh, and as safe as everyone could possibly be. Was fifteen a lot different? Fifteen was just so different. Uh, everyone was older. Um, and it was, I mean, it was an amazing time and party and everyone had a great time, but 
it, for me, it was just, uh, you know, social media has changed too, right? I think just how open you want to be uh, with the fans and, uh, you know, we'd have drinks and everything with them, but, you know, it wasn't as, I guess, intimate like that uh, as I, I, I'm sure everyone from that kind of era compared to now would say the same thing. You still want to have fun, but uh, yeah, it, that would have been the difference. That whole season was different. I mean, it, it was such a, a difficult season on and off the ice. You guys were exhausted. Um, you had, you know, Clint died and, and Steve Montador. Yeah. You had the off-ice, uh, the rumors going on around players' personal lives. It didn't seem like you guys had a lot of fun during that year. It's almost like you won by sheer force of will. Like, how, do you, how would you describe that season? I think that was a lot of it. It was, uh, yeah, there was a lot going on, and um, which was unfair and unfortunate. But uh, everyone really rallied around that. I think everyone really rallied around, everyone really rallied around the Clint death. Mm-hmm. because he is such a huge part of us. He, I mean, he's the first guy to ever sharpen my skates and play in the NHL, you know, and uh, just having his son around all the time. So that that was the biggest rallying for us was for Clint. Uh, and like you said, other issues that came up. But, um, yeah, it, it, we're older too. We all had families. I had a kid on the way. Um, a lot of guys had kids by then. So times have definitely changed from where we were prior but the relationships as friends were all still there uh, is just how we went about our, our lives were much different. We, we were talking about last week, a little bit doing those, that, that playoff run where you had uh Teravine was a scratch and from that was a scratch. And did you guys question that at all? Or, or kind of wondering what, what's going on or you know, just how uh, just the verse you guys went through in that whole Nashville series. even? Yeah. I think guys were always questioning whether who was in or who was out. And uh but like I said, I told you that earlier with Glenville, you're like, what the hell? I maybe played great the night before. And then all of a sudden he, he just sees something that's not going with you. And he's like I said, he's the best gambler I ever played for. He, he, you would be sitting there and all of a sudden one night I'd be like, you know, doing great for maybe two or three games and I wouldn't have the greatest first shift and I wouldn't play. And all of a sudden he puts Bickle where I am and Bickle scores, you know? And as a player, you're like, holy shit, like what the like are you kidding me like I'm so happy for Beck scoring but you're like how did he know that was going to happen and 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 as a player you kind of feel like like uh embarrassed a little bit because it wasn't you but also you're like understanding like okay it's huge for the team so that's where you gotta put your ego aside and and you know shut up and just be ready again when you gotta go which is hard to do but it's something you got to do on winning teams and that year we had a lot of guys that had to put their ego aside and shut up and just realize who was ever going at the moment. Like I didn't get a play in the, the Anaheim series, uh, really, or the other one. And then all of a sudden I play the, the Tampa Bay finals, you know, and I'm sure Bix is like, what the hell, why am I not playing? So there's a, there was a lot of questioning, but you just gotta, I guess, be ready when your name's called and, and not, you know, be pissed off about it. That's something that's always fascinated me. I mean, you can't talk to a player in the game about it because they can't say anything bad. But when you're a scratch, I mean, isn't there a part of you rooting for the team to lose, rooting for the guys to screw up so you can get back in the lineup? How do you reconcile that with the fact that you obviously want the team to win and these are your friends? Yeah, it, yeah. as a player, you're just – I think it's just you're more pissed off. And some guys – you talk with guys, yeah, you might be being like, man, I hope uh, – hope Bixie doesn't score one and one tonight. You can maybe be thinking that a little bit, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. You, you definitely have thoughts and you have moments where uh, you have bitterness, but at the same time, 
the, the, the goal is so much greater. It is hard though. It, it, it is hard, uh, from thoughts floating in your head. For me, it was more so like, ah, I'd love to go and coach his office and flip his desk. You know what <laughs> I mean? More than having bitterness towards a teammate or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you definitely, you, you got to hope for yourself too. There's a, there's an ego there. And anyone who says that, uh, you know, pro hockey players don't have egos is crazy because you have to have an ego in order to get where you're at. It's just about how hard you can park that ego. And in times like that, where you are, you are going to get scratched or you are going to, you know, be embarrassed about what's happened. It's, you know, parking it and coming back and being better uh, for it. I don't remember what game it was, but I recall it was when you were healthy scratched at one point where I remember watching you in warmups and you just spent the whole warmups kind of flipping pucks into the crowd. And, and I remember just, it was, it was, a, it was a number of them. And I, Laz was actually working for a different publication and kind of came up to me like, what are you doing? Like, you're just counting pucks. And he's, he's, <laughs> do, you, do you remember that at all? Where you, you like maybe there was one warmups where you just were so frustrated. Yeah, I think it was LA in 14. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like I knew like I, my leg was shit and, um i knew i wasn't playing good and you're you're like i said you're embarrassed you know you up until that point i'd never been healthy scratched and or i one time but like and and it's on the biggest stage and you know and basically i just started giving fans pucks the entire warm-ups because i knew i wasn't playing going to that and i did a couple a couple reps but yeah you're just like fuck it let's just throw the fans some pucks i'm not playing anyways you know well, I know we can't keep you too much longer. I did want to ask you, um, with the NHL and the situation it's in right now, what are the challenges? Let, let's say best case scenario that, yeah, in July, everybody's coming back to finish, you know, three weeks of the regular season. What are the challenges these guys are going to face having not been able to skate, not been able to work out? How hard and how dangerous is it going to be for guys to come back on short notice like that? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to be that hard. Uh, if they get a camp in, and they can get going. It just depends how condensed the games. I wouldn't be so worried about how dangerous it would be for them now as to how dangerous it would be for them in November or December next year if they really mm -hmm. haven't had any time off. I think the rest actually would help a lot of guys and a lot of teams right now. Uh, but I don't know how condensed they're going to have to make the schedule in order to fit it in and then finish playoffs. Uh, but you got to think, if they're done, if they play and then it's August and then all of a sudden they do – um, when, whenever they got to do the draft, probably soon, I would expect, but free agency and then go right back into the next season, that next year is going to be a haul. And uh, I don't know I, what escrow would be for guys. I don't know, um, you know what's going to go about that. But I could tell you, you know, if you're playing for a year straight and you're, you're making 10% um, of your paycheck, I wouldn't be happy about it. But that's just might, might be what they have to do. And uh, those are just the realities to it. And those are something that the league and the players are going to have to figure out. I don't know what it is, but uh, physically it would be next year would be what I'd worry about. Could, could you imagine being on the Detroit Red Wings and your 9,000 games under 500 and having to come back I, and play? I think for those teams, they just, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously you want every team to get in and play for, for multiple reasons, business and, um escrow for the players and um you know for the fans as well they you know give them on tv something to watch obviously they got to make sure uh everyone's safe and they're doing it the, the most safe way possible but uh yeah i, I would have thought that they wouldn't even have asked the red wings or um those teams to really come back maybe take winning percentage and just start whittling out the teams and then you know 
probably three teams in the East, three in the West, and then bring back the other teams that might have a, a higher percentage to win. I don't know, but obviously again, um, money talks and that's what, uh, uh, they're probably trying to figure out the best way to, to create, um, revenue. Would you be fearful at all about the virus or do you kind of assume the legal cross, you know, all the, what it needs to with that? The what, sir? So would you, would you be concerned at all with the virus at all at this? I mean, coming back at all? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think everyone's still learning about the virus and antibody testing and, and what can really happen uh, if you get sick, if you can get sick again. And um, you got to think there's a lot that goes into it. They're going to have to house um, each division, you know, 20 players times seven or eight uh, plus the the black aces and everyone. So you're going to have to have enough hotel and hotel staff and people cooking and cleaning uh, and doing a lot of things in order to house the players for that time. So you just got to make sure that uh, everyone knows the risk and everything going into it and make sure you have enough, uh, I guess, knowledge of what the disease can do. I mean, that, that would be just the questions I'd have, but uh, those are going to be the questions that the NHL and everyone's going to have to answer. Well, I think you're getting out at the right time is the lesson here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it is. But <laughs> coronavirus never ended my, my career though. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely didn't, but it, it's, it is, it is hard times and it's scary, you know, for a lot of people um, that need the money or the people that have lost jobs and it's hard. It's very, very hard times. And um yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up with much, and I can only imagine what we would have had to go through with uh, when I was younger, um, trying to make ends meet and do things. So, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot going on, and a lot of people in the world you got to worry about, and you got to make the right decision for everyone. What uh, what what's what's the future hold for you now? I'm gonna probably I don't know what day they want me to start, or there's nothing in fine print but i i'm gonna start with Sportsnet, i would think and start doing i don't know if it'd be radio or games and start getting my reps in because i do know uh, i did some uh tv in calgary and then i did a little bit on trade deadline and you know you say one piece and you know like with the whole david Ayers thing uh i talk about and you get 15 seconds to voice your opinion and then uh you can fucking piss off everybody <laughs> so you, you gotta you gotta learn how to voice your opinion but also get a lot more across than just your opinion in a short time frame. So repetition is going to be something that uh, I need practice with. Uh, and I'm going to start doing it with or doing that with them. And then as well, coaching my kids, my kids are four, turning four and five now, and they really like hockey and I'm going to coach them and try to pass on all the knowledge of all the great players and coaches I got to play for onto them. And uh, down the road, I don't know what'll happen, but for right now, media would for sure be the job that I'll be be getting into get any advice from patrick sharp yeah just don't have that well he had that brain fart on air did he not oh, early he, on yeah the first year yeah yeah that's i looked at him and i couldn't even laugh because like holy shit that could happen to me you know <laughs> obviously not on nbc probably but uh um yeah I, i've talked to him a little bit about it uh when i did my last shift and talked to burish a little about a little bit about it and i also played with colby armstrong uh, I know Anthony Stewart. So I've got to talk uh, to a lot of players who are doing media right now about it. And they're the ones who basically tell you to live with your opinion and find ways within that opinion to, uh, you know, get your point across. 
funny how all these players hate doing media, but once they're done, they just go and join the media, don't they? Well, it's the thing is <laughs> media back in the day, especially it wasn't like the cool thing for guys to do, you know, mm-hmm. and spitting chiclets. Uh, I played with wit. Those guys have kind of made, uh, they've definitely made media cool for the players to be a part of now. And mm-hmm. I think you see John Scott now as a podcast, Cam Jansen, and a lot of guys are starting to get into podcasts and, and talk about their times in the league and talk about the game and realize that, um, you know, the media is a great way to make a second living and to stay uh, relevant, stay involved in the game. And I think you're seeing a lot more players hop into that now because, you know, some guys like the spit and chicklets and, you know, are, are paving way uh, to help other players be involved in it. Cool. Well, Chris, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Sorry if I ramble on sometimes. I feel like taking care of the kids. Uh, I'm just brain dead now. <laughs> That's hey, man. We're all there. We all have quarantine brain at this point. Yeah, I'm just like, it, it's it's uh, long days. I think my wife found me hiding under the stairs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, good luck. Uh, stay safe. Stay sane. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road, I'm sure. Good luck, man. For sure. Take care, guys. Thank you. Won't you let me try?